Right, here we go then. Part two, episode 21 technically, but obviously part two of the two-part series discussing binges and, of course, emotional slash stress eating. Now, of course, if you haven't listened to episode one, you don't necessarily have to, and episode one, sorry, part one, you don't necessarily have to for this podcast to be relevant or informative. But, of course, I would be remiss to not say to you this is kind of not covering the same ground, but covering similar ground. And so I would recommend that you listen to part one before you listen to this one, because I suppose one way of coping, you know, emotional stress eating is to binge. So I would say, you know, it's definitely worth checking out the uh, the binge episode. But here we go, part two, emotional and stress eating. Now, what is it? First and foremost, it's a coping strategy. It's not necessarily one which is the most rational or most thought out of coping strategies, but it's one which is incredibly common. Most people exercise some form of consumption response to a stressful or emotional situation. You know, let's not beat around the bush. Eating sugar, you know, comfort food, etc. Hell, you know, look at that term itself, comfort food. It does bring us some short-term relief, you know? And I suppose, you know, stress, comfort, eating in itself, think of it as like a snowball effect. It's kind of short-term gain for long-term pain. At that very moment in time, the boost of sugar, the release of dopamine at the time of consumption leads to a temporary relief of how you're feeling. You you genuinely feel better for the briefest moment of time. But as I said, it's a snowball effect. So that temporary moment of relief then leads to a feeling of guilt. It then leads to a feeling of self-deprecation, you know, and that then in turn brings you out to a point that you were worse or, you know, you're now worse off in terms of how you feel than you were originally. So obviously, you know, emotional eating, stress eating, etc. It's not a sensible response, but we know that. Hell, it's probably why you're listening to this fucking podcast at the end of the day. So let's talk about the psychology behind stress, emotional eating. Well, first things first, it's habitual. It is a habit. And habits are made up of three parts, the trigger, the response, and the reward. And thank you to an amazing book by an author called Charles Duhigg on this one. Uh, it's an amazing book called The Power of Habit. There's also a condensed version if you're not a huge reader and it's available in audiobook format too. And it's an incredible book which will help you understand kind of your daily habits, you know, the things that drive things forwards. To, uh, to give you a long and a short of it, we only have so much processing power in our brains the same way that on my laptop right now I'm recording this podcast but imagine if I had videos running and things downloading and you know a game being played in the background as well it's just too much for my laptop's memory too much for my laptop's brain to be able to process so what your brain does is it creates habitual activities or habitual habits basically I don't know why I was trying to beat around the bush with that one. Fucking habits. <laughs> because what that does is it allows your life to run autonomously. It allows you to get on with the day-to-day, to apply very kind of conscious thought to a lot of the things that you do, 
But with the routine tasks, driving to work, brushing your teeth, what leg you put in your trousers first, this kind of stuff, we don't want to expend too much mental you know, processing power on that. There's an old story about Steve Jobs where he wore the same clothes every single day. It was a black uh, turtleneck, jeans, and trainers. And the reason why he didn't change his clothes is because that meant that he didn't have to expend any additional thought power, processing power, whatever, on making decisions about what he was going to wear that day. He could expend all of his processing power, all of his thought process on building new products, etc. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off track here. Essentially, emotional eating, stress eating is a habitual response. The trigger is a stressful slash emotional situation. The response is then to dive into the biscuit tin, reach for the chocolate in the drawer, consume, essentially. And the reward is that temporary feeling of relief, sugar, you know, just the general kind of dopamine response that your body elicits from you having food. It's rewarding you, you know, you've just given me calories. Thank you very much. I need those to stay alive. But obviously, it's not a helpful habit. It's not a helpful behavior. So we need to look at how we can change that behavior. And the first thing to recognize with regards to habits is they are not something which is easily deleted. Habits are hackable and changeable, but removing a habit altogether is not always the best approach and isn't always the healthiest approach. Going back to part one, same thing with regards to binges. Sometimes it isn't actually advantageous to try to remove the the, the kind of the, the act of binging it's sometimes more beneficial to learn to live with it and learn to encompass it in our life, encompass it in our, you know, our process, our, our day-to-day existence, as opposed to trying to get rid of it. And so with regards to emotional eating, stress eating, it is a coping strategy because we need a coping strategy for those situations. You know, if we if we just allow ourselves to be consumed by stress or the emotions, etc., then and have no outlet for it, you know, then that's going to cause us a problem. So we need to recognize that we do need an outlet for our stress. We do need an outlet for our emotions. We do need to get better at processing them, but we also need to get better at the things we seek comfort in to alleviate that stress. So here's my thoughts with regards what I pay forward to my clients in terms of an approach to deal with comfort eating, stress eating, etc. Now, I'm not saying this is the only approach. I'm not saying this is the best approach. As with every one of my podcasts, this is an approach which I've found has worked for a number of people. There may very well be better approaches out there. There may very well be elements of this that you don't agree with, and that's cool. Welcome to 25 minutes of my opinion, basically. But here's what I've found has worked. First things first, as I said, it's not something which you can get rid of. You know, emotional eating, the habit of doing that is not easily overwritten. A lot of the time it comes from how you were brought up. It comes from your your childhood, your upbringing. It's a habit which has been ingrained over multiple years. And so it's not going to be something which is an overnight fix, you know. So step one. I'm trying, by the way, I'm trying very hard not to say thus too much in my podcasts <laughs> because it's my, I've never even realized it, but it's my buzzword, but I'm going to do my best to minimize the thuses. So 
Step one. The first thing you need to do is acknowledge the behavior. Acknowledge the fact that you comfort eat. Acknowledge the fact that you stress eat. I spoke in part one about the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program and the first step being to admit that you have a problem. Same process goes here. You can't, you can't try to change anything in your life, anything about your behavior or who you are as a person until you acknowledge that you do that thing. You have to acknowledge that, yes, I do stress eat. Yes, I do emotionally eat. Yes, I try to fix or ease my emotions or emotional pain with food. That's the first thing we have to do. If we don't acknowledge that, then the rest of the steps thereafter are fucking pointless. But hell, the fact that you're listening to this podcast, unless, of course, you're one of those people that has to box off every episode so that you can kind of not miss anything, then, like I said, but, you know, going back to the, to a previous point, to in some degree, we have, we all stress and emotionally eat. You know, this isn't a situation, this isn't something which is going to completely go away. We all do it, you know. But again, a bit like the binges, it's a dial, you know. There are some people that turn it up to 11 or have it turned up to 11. There's some people that have low-level um, emotional stress eating. And it's important to recognize this isn't, am I an emotional stress eater or not? It's important to recognize that you either, you know, you do it, but to what extent? Secondly, once we've acknowledged the behavior, we need to recognize the triggers. Now, the way we do this is through experience. So for all of you listening that are thinking this is going to be a one-stop shop, jobs are good in with regards dealing with emotional eating, the first thing you've got to gather is experience. And you can't gather experience from just looking back because memory, as we've touched on in a previous podcast, is not always the most reliable thing. So we need data. So the, my best advice to you is if you are an emotional and stress eater, like I said, problem's not going to go away overnight. But when it happens, we need to accrue and compile that data. So what we need to do is we need to recognize our triggers. What happened? Where were we? Who were we with? What was the situation? How were we feeling at the time? And so many other different things. You know, you remember the uh, the bums on a rugby post with the what, where, who, when, and the how. That's what we need to apply with regards recognizing the triggers. You know, what has triggered it? And look for patterns, you know. Every time you stress, every time you emotionally eat, look for patterns that trigger that behavior. Because everybody's triggers when it comes to habits are different. Once you've begun to recognize what those triggers are, we need to give you time to think because the trigger itself isn't necessarily going to be something that you can change. You know, you can't necessarily, you know, if the trigger is stress at work, then sure, we can maybe try to apply my favorite quote, serenity, accept what you cannot change, courage to change the things you can and the wisdom to know the difference. But that may not work, you know, the stress of work may remain. It may be that, you know, stress of kids, whatever, or, you know, a lack of lack of kind of control in that guise is something that triggers it. So the trigger isn't always something that we can change, but we can change the response. And this is where habit hacking really comes into its own. Because, yes, the trigger remains the same. But to change the response, i.e. not reaching for food, not going for the biscuit tin, the chocolate you've got hidden in the drawer, packet of crisps, multi pack of crisps, heading to the shops, whatever. To change the response, 
we need information to be able to figure out why that is the response. You know, like I said, recognizing those triggers first, but we need to give you time to change that response. So once we recognize what the triggers are, we can then see, yep, when that happens, I go and do this. And so we need to give you time to second guess yourself, time to think, time to hack that habit and basically implement a new behavior. Now, without going too into the nitty gritty, this is where the manipulation of dopamine comes in. To lay this out in layman's terms, dopamine is a reward hormone. To give you kind of the bare bones explanation of why we have dopamine in our bodies, we must go back to caveman times. Now, we needed to be motivated to find food through reasons other than just hunger. So Mr. Caveman would wander out and about and he would find, let's say, an apple tree. We're like, brilliant apple tree. Get a lot of apples, take them back to the cave. Jobs are good. And at that point, Mr. Caveman got a hit of dopamine when he found the tree. Okay, saw the tree, grabbed the apples, body elicits a hit of dopamine as a pat on the back. Well done. You did a good job response because his brain his body wants him to be rewarded for supplying it with a very essential nutrient something that you know the body needs to survive so what happens next time well to motivate mr caveman to go back to that tree it's not advantageous to not produce dopamine beforehand it's not advent sorry it's it's not advantageous to produce the dopamine once you find the tree again we need to motivate mr caveman to go to the tree this is where dopamine changes or dopamine response changes essentially what happens now is when mr caveman thinks about going to the tree his body will reward him with a little dose of dopamine all of a sudden, hormone coursing through his veins, he feels good, or coursing through his brain, I should say. He feels good. He remembers the reward and the taste and the, the everything about the apple. And thus, he goes to the tree, gets more apples, gets another hit of dopamine as another pat on the back. This is how habits work. Initially, we get rewarded for the response. You know, we get the trigger, we get the response, we get our hit of dopamine, and thus, that's our reward. But... Going forwards, we need a more sensible system to encourage repeat behavior. And thus, our body knows that. There's the word thus. Fuck it. So, it produces dopamine when we think about that behavior. Same, this same process, this same rudimentary kind of system happens whether, you know, caveman times or 2020. You know, this is how the human brain works. And this is why... We get rewarded for things like going to the gym. Initially, it's something we have to force ourselves to do. You know, it's like, come on, go to the gym. You go to the gym, you get a hit of dopamine after you work out. You feel great because of the dopamine. It's very addictive, by the way. But as time goes on, you build up the habit. You build up the habit of going to the gym. And thus, when you think about going to the gym, once you've successfully built the habit, of course, you know, some people don't get to this point. You get a little trigger of dopamine when you think about going, thus motivating you to go. This is why forming habits as far as logging on MyFitnessPal, if that's your thing, 
This is why forming a habit as far as exercise goes, as far as basically the essential and important day-to-day stuff is so vital. This is why we need to create habits because those hits of dopamine, those autonomous actions are what lead to repeat actions. And so what leads to repeat behaviors. So taking us right back to what I was talking about, We need to give ourselves time to change the response. We're already getting our hit of dopamine when we think about having that piece of chocolate, when we think about going to the biscuit tin. But we need to hack this habit. We need to change things. How do we do that? Well, I like to think of it, and I have touched on this previously in a podcast. I like to think of it as, imagine a road going down through the woods. This is what's in my head when I think of this. Now, where you are, And at the end of this road is what you're looking to do. So at the end of the road is, you know, going to a biscuit tin or bar of chocolate, whatever is at the end of the road. So you're going, you're driving and down this road. And usually there's no checkpoint. There's nobody stopping you. Okay. The, you get triggered, you feel emotional, you feel stressed, you jump in the car, you immediately, you know, mentally drive down this road, you get to the chocolate bar, there's the response and boom, you get your reward. Now, my thought process behind this using sometimes something as simple as a post-it note, even an alarm in your phone, you know, a little message on top of the, the, the chocolate bar or inside the cupboard, whatever, even a diary, you know, something you have to write in before you get to that point. Every little action we can take to delay the response of eating is going to buy us time to be mindful. Bias time to second guess yourself. Give yourself time to think, to really review what you're about to do and ask if it is the advantageous thing that you think it is. So what I like to think of is this road, smack bang in the middle of it, you've got a nice white and red barrier. You've got a little hut next to that barrier and you've got a guy with a gun. You've got a guard. So what happens? You get triggered by stress, an emotional response, okay? You get triggered by stress at work, whatever. The usual response is to jump in your car, drive down this road, and go and have some food. But halfway down the road, you come across your post-it note stuck on top of the chocolate bar, or in this particular situation, you come to the checkpoint. Man with the gun walks up to your window. You roll down your window, and he says to you, are you sure you want to do that? How's that going to make you feel? Driving down this road, going to get that chocolate bar. Are you definitely sure that's something you want to do? Tell me, how are you feeling at the moment? What's brought this on? And that's how I think of creating these mental checkpoints. Because that in itself just gives you a second to second guess yourself and question your action. And the road no longer becomes a singular road directly to the food you want to consume. It becomes a fork. After the checkpoint... As he raises his barrier, because in that moment, you then have a choice. Yep, I definitely want to do this. And you're of sound mind and you go, he lets you go and okay, cool. And you go and consume the food. But if it's a habit you want to change, you've then got this crossroads. Do you continue down the left-hand path towards same behavior, same habit, go and consume the food? Or do you go down the right-hand path towards something which is potentially more advantageous to deal with your stress? be it taking yourself out of the environment, could be going for a walk, could be calling a friend, could be writing a letter, could be 
writing in a diary, could be picking up a stress ball, could be punching something. <laughs> Hopefully not the latter one, but you get where I'm coming from. The mental checkpoint gives you a second to think, gives you a moment to be mindful, to second guess what you're about to do. And the checkpoint remains, like I said, as something as simple as a little post-it note. Are you sure you want to do this? Just to give yourself a second to calm down, even if that's literally a breathing exercise. And let me give you the best example of this, which is not to do with emotional eating, but it is to do with an emotional response. There's something called the two-night letter strategy. Probably needs a better name. But bear with me on this. If you are ever upset with someone, upset be it with a company, upset with, you know, anybody that you need to communicate with, be it in email, be it in letter, it doesn't make you know any difference. Anything you have a grievance about. Granted, sometimes this timeline doesn't work, but take it, imagine, you know, there isn't too much restriction on time. So you're pissed off. You jump on your computer, you write out this very strongly worded email, strongly worded letter, and you print it and you stick it in an envelope. Or, you know, you finish writing it, you put regards, not kind regards, because you're pissed off. So you're putting regards. I wait your quickest reply, whatever. At that moment, you are very emotional. You have written a lot of words, which potentially could be misconstrued, could be taken the wrong way. And you're only acting from one emotion, anger. It's like that film Inside Out. It's the red guy that's working on the panel. So in that moment, you're angry. All of your emotions are being poured and being fed by anger. There's not a huge amount of empathy. There's not a huge amount of two-sided thinking going on there. We are reacting emotionally. The two-night strategy is basically you take that email, you take that letter... You pop the email in your outbox, your drafts, with the letter, you pop it in an envelope, you seal the envelope, and you pop it in a drawer. And you then wait two nights. So you go to sleep twice, knowing the email is there, knowing the letter is there, and just thinking more about the situation. Now, of course, over the space of, you know, however long the two nights could be, that could be 36 hours, that could be 48 hours. Before you question my maths there, just think about it. We're not doing full days here. We're talking two sleeps. So what you then do is after you've had those two nights, you then reassess. You then read through the letter. You read through the email. Do you want to change it? Do you still want to send it as is? And the two-night strategy stops you from potentially causing irreparable damage by saying, writing, sending words which cannot be unsent. Be it you're pissed off with your boss and you're sending an email and you kind of, you know, or resignation, you know, or complaint or something like that. So the two-night strategy allows you to really think about it, to be mindful, to allow every emotion to come to the forefront, to give every emotion's opinion. Again, I've got inside out in my head, joys of having triplets. You know, you've got anger, you've got joy, you've got sadness, you've got all of these emotions are allowed to contribute to how you're feeling and your thought process with regards what you wanted to do, i.e. send the letter, complain, tell them to go fuck themselves. The principle with that is exactly the same with 
you know, as is, as the checkpoint in the road. It's giving yourself an opportunity to change things before things can't be changed. And that is what I've found to be the best way of dealing with emotional eating and stress eating. Because, as I said earlier, there is no overnight fix. There is no kind of magic pill to be able to resolve being a stress eater, being someone that gets stressed, turns to food, jobs are good and it's going to be something which takes time. Building the habit in the first place takes time. I saw an amazing quote yesterday, which was, don't expect anything that took longer than overnight to create, be it gaining body fat, habits, whatever, is not going to take or not going to be overnight to fix. Same thing goes here. This is a constant application of reminder constantly putting those checkpoints in place be it with a physical thing to remind you and hacking the habit do you really want to eat the food why not go for a walk take yourself out of the situation so many people just you know take themselves outside go and get some fresh air pick up the phone tell someone about it and instantly once they've said those words they feel better i've got some clients that send whatsapps to themselves where they send themselves an audio message or they send themselves a video message even, or even just a message, whatever, just saying it out loud. And that sometimes can be one of the biggest keys, say it out loud. Because when it's inside our head, it makes perfect sense. It's only when we hear those words does the rational side begin to creep in. It's one of the reasons that we can be so hypocritical when it comes to giving people advice but not following that advice ourselves because the whole time it's in our head our brain's making complete sense of it but it's only when we say it out loud that we go that doesn't make any fucking sense now i ain't saying that this is gonna be like i said the 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 cure sometimes emotional eating stressful eating will remain but as is with binges in the previous episode it's important to recognize that there is intensity and frequency at play here. Just because our intensity is turned up to 11 and our frequency is turned up to 11, i.e. we emotionally and stress eat frequently and to a high intensity, which could then lead to binges, it's important to recognize that maybe we can't remove that habit completely. Maybe we are still going to binge. Maybe we are still going to emotionally and stress eat. But perhaps the healthier way of looking at it is how can we find a way to turn those dials down? How can we reduce the intensity so not as many calories go in? And how can we reduce the frequency so that the majority of our stressful situations we are finding better and more advantageous coping mechanisms rather than turning to something which will ultimately detriment us and make us feel shit, therefore kind of compounding the whole thing. Like I said, it's not always about removal, but reduction. So there we go. The end of my two-part series on binges and emotional and stress eating. Perhaps a lot that you guys have taken away from these two episodes. Perhaps they haven't helped you. Perhaps you've listened to it and gone, yeah, a lot of stuff you already knew. And don't get me wrong, a lot of my coaching sometimes is stuff that people already know. But it's about sometimes explaining it in a different way. 
No, let's not be around the bush. We're not idiots. We know what we're doing as far as calories go. We know what we're doing as far as our behavior goes. But sometimes we need a little accountability, which is obviously why I run my coaching business. And sometimes we need someone to just get rid of the fluff. Because when we're all up in our own heads, it's very difficult to make sense of things. A bit like the... Uh, the boxes and tidying up the toys analogy I used in a previous podcast. Fucking hell, I've used a lot of analogies in these previous podcasts. Sometimes we just need someone to help us us tidy our brain. Sometimes we just need someone to talk to. That talking out loud thing I spoke about. Sometimes we just need to say the words to realize that actually it doesn't make sense. So folks, like I said, I hope you enjoyed these two podcasts. Double this week, two episodes in the space of one week, in the space of a few days. And if you have anything you'd like me to cover in episode 22 and beyond, then fire it over to my inbox. Make sure you comment on the post. Let me know what you thought of this episode or thought of the two-part series. And of course, make sure that you continue to follow and subscribe to these podcasts. We haven't had a review on iTunes since April. So if you are a strategic listener, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I suppose, um, and leave a little review for me. Okay, we've got a few reviews on there, but the more reviews we get, the more people that are going to be exposed to these podcasts. So you'd be doing me a massive favor and that could be your payment for these free podcasts you get. Okay, just head over on over there. Tell your friends about it. Refer your friends to the podcasts. Let me know your feedback because my enthusiasm for doing this is driven by hearing how they help you guys. So make sure you let me know your thoughts. Okay, even if you want to do it anonymously on the review, you can put an anonymous name if you want to. But like I said, folks, appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. And I will see you on episode 22. Have a good week.